Law Talk with BJ, the podcast where trial attorney and legal commentator BJ Bernstein and her guests discuss the latest issues from around the legal world. BJ is a frequent commentator on television and radio. She's unique in that she not only comments on legal issues, having been lead counsel on numerous high-profile cases of national interest, but her relatable personal style allows the viewer to understand the law behind the headlines and why it's important. Now, here's your host, B.J. Bernstein. Law Talk with B.J. has now recorded over 40 episodes where my focus, of course, is law. I have shared with you the many voices and participants in the legal system, from lawyers in the criminal and civil justice arenas to the judges in the trial and appellate courts. There is, though, another aspect of law, and that is the lawmakers themselves, the legislators who pass the laws that govern and that are tested and enforced by the courts. On May 19, 2020, there will be an election to determine who will be the Democratic nominee to the United States Senate, who will run against the current United States Senator, David Perdue of the Republican Party, and they will battle it out in November. Over the next few weeks, you will hear directly from several of the candidates running for the U.S. Senate Democratic nomination, including Sarah Riggs Amico, John Ossoff, Ted Terry, and Teresa Tomlinson. These podcasts will allow you to meet the candidates and hear their own voices, their goals, their views on the critical issues and the laws that are passed. Do not take anything I say with each candidate as a personal endorsement. I, of course, as I've done with other political podcasts that I've brought to you, am intentionally not making any donation or endorsing any particular candidate so that I can bring to you their voices, their vision for Georgia and the nation. As we know, it's critical that we get out there and vote. If you haven't registered to vote, the time is now as you're listening to this to make arrangements and get that registration done and then plan to vote on May 19th, 2020, if you are going to vote for the nominees for the U.S. Senate. And recall that on May 19th, 2020, you're also going to be voting for some judges who have been the subject of other podcasts. So with that, take a listen and let's meet one of the Senate candidates. Welcome to Law Talk with BJ. This episode, a guest is running for the United States Senate in the Democratic primary on May 19th, 2020. You'll be at the polls because, of course, if you're listening to this podcast, hopefully you will, in fact, vote. It's the most important thing that you can do. And this candidate is John Ossoff. Welcome, John. Thank you, BJ. Great to be here. So, John, let's just start with the simple part. What is making you run now for the U.S. Senate? For our listeners, you ran for Congress previously, and you did not make it into the U.S. Congress, but you're coming back around immediately now and running for the U.S. Senate. What's driving you to do that? Well, I'm an investigative journalist and a media executive by trade. So I run a company that produces anti-corruption investigations, frontline conflict reports all around the world. We expose the abuse of power human rights abuses, people who abuse the public trust and steal from the public purse. And I'm passionate about fighting the abuse of power and holding people accountable when they don't live up to their obligations to the public, when they hurt their fellow human beings. Right now, we've got a lot of that going on in this country. This country is afflicted by a deep corruption in our politics. 
And I don't just mean Donald Trump. Arguably, Donald Trump's presidency, in my opinion, is a symptom of a deeper corruption. So what, what do you think is the root of this corruption? What steps need to be taken to besides, obviously, you're running, but what type of policies or things could be put in place to, to tear that down? Well, if you look at any of the problems that our government fails or refuses to solve, whether it's the healthcare crisis, the environmental crisis, the way that our economic system is structured to disadvantage poor people and to benefit the wealthiest and most powerful, the influence of money and particularly big and secret money in politics is at the root. So all of these issues that affect us day to day, the exorbitant cost of prescription drugs, the ongoing destruction of the planet, the fact that we still have so many people who lack health insurance, the malign influence of money in politics is at the root and campaign finance reform is essential if we are going to be able to solve these problems because until we can reduce the influence of powerful trade groups and of the wealthiest donors in our country, we won't be able to enact public policy in the public interest. Now you, although you're 32 years old, you've done a lot of things in this time. Um, in that you actually interned with Congressman John Lewis um, when you were in school, and then you worked drafting legislation for U.S. Representative Hank Johnson here in Georgia. Um, how did you know already at that point that you were ready to focus on um, policy and politics? And then how? what makes you ready to be there and actually be the person in the Senate as opposed to just interning or working with someone? My interest in government and public policy emerged from my interest in history when I was very young. I was always a history buff and fascinated trying to understand the American story, the human story, where we came from to we try had, to understand where we had this where in common. I was a history major also. Got it. And that led to interest in law, yes. obviously. Yeah. And, and, you know, I was coming of age around the time of the Iraq War. And that was where the light bulb went off, 2002, 2003, that it was politics that was driving history. And around that same time, I read the memoirs of Congressman John Lewis, Walking with the Wind. And I was so moved by his story that I wrote him a letter asking if I could come and work in his office. I was 15, 16 years old at the time. And he said, come on, and invited me to spend a summer as a very young man working alongside him learning from him. He provided such a generous level of mentorship for someone so young. And I saw how the work that he was doing, even amidst all the dysfunction in DC, was improving the lives of his constituents. And that is what really animated my interest in public service and my awareness of how government and public policy matter. So in terms of policy, you know, obviously with Law Talk with BJ, we talk a lot about the various laws and I'm a criminal defense attorney. Can we talk a little bit about specific views on criminal justice reform, um, where it can be improved and what avenues you would advocate for if you are a senator? Yeah, I think we need bold criminal justice reform at the federal and state level. And I think that the steps that have been taken at the federal level and at the state level here in Georgia in the last few years are promising in that 
They demonstrate there's a bipartisan recognition of the problem, but are woefully inadequate against the scale of the problem. We have a huge problem with mass incarceration. We have a huge problem with over-sentencing for nonviolent offenders. We have a huge problem with racial disparities at every step of our criminal justice system, from policing to prosecution to sentencing to incarceration. We have a huge problem with the conditions in our facilities of incarceration. And I think that the profit motive in incarceration is driving a lot of this abusive policy that violates people's human rights. The fact that we have a private prison industry that stands to benefit when more people are locked up for longer and stands to benefit when they can cut overheads by reducing the conditions and quality of conditions in incarceration so that they can return more to shareholders. And there are definitely private prisons in Georgia. I can attest to that when I go visit and, and I can even tell the difference when that's the case. And then also a lot of the where persons in the part of the immigration issue, those are privately owned um, and just fuels um, you know, spending money and, and an incentive to incarcerate as opposed to rehabilitate or find out um, that there are mental health issues at, at play. Um, and that leads me to some questions about mental health um, in terms of the health care system. I, you mentioned briefly about the health care system, but is there a way or do you have any policies to help that portion of our population that, that, that is fairly large, larger than I think sometimes we all acknowledge of needing not just regular health care, but mental health care as well? Yes, and it transitions from the discussion of criminal justice because so many people who wind up locked up for a long time have a problem with drug abuse or drug addiction, which in my view should be treated as a health care issue and not as a criminal issue where there is not a violent offense on someone's record. I think so many of the problems that we're trying to solve are rooted in a lack of basic access to health care, preventative health care, and mental health care, especially in the South and especially in Georgia. And the fact that there are so many people who lack health insurance and Georgia has either the second or third, depending on how you count it, highest rate of uninsurance in the country. Our state leadership has refused to expand Medicaid. That just sets people up for hardship and it sets people up, frankly, for failure when they can't access the health care that we all should be able to rely upon to prevent the emergence of disease and illness, to treat addiction, to intervene where there are mental health issues early so that people can live to their full potential. And look, I, BJ, there's a lot of polarization in politics, obviously, and a lot of bitter division right now. But really here in Georgia and across the country, we are more united on many of these issues than we might be led to believe. Most Georgians believe every citizen should have health care. Most Georgians support criminal justice reform, just like most Georgians believe we need to save our environment, invest in our infrastructure. There's a broad public consensus on a lot of these issues, but the corruption of our politics by money and by the sheer incentive for parties to protect and grow their own power, mm -hmm. no matter the cost, to the public, no matter how it might betray their principles, is preventing us from making progress. And, and you bring it up an interesting point because I know I, in reading some things about you, um, cons, you know, talking about weapons and how the gun laws and obviously the federal level, the gun laws are very important. 
and how there is this dichotomy on the one hand, you know, if you say to someone, you know, criminal justice reform, and if I tell you an individual case or a story of one of my clients, you feel sympathy for them. But then when we put them in that broader um, category, it's like, no, that's the person who's wrong. That's the person who has to go away, not getting behind it. Um, and then the same thing with weapons. I know that I've had a lot of young people in my career who, you know, they they don't really know much about a weapon other than, you know, they have it. They don't realize it. I remember I literally had one client who um, trying to be part of something with other young people and they somebody had stolen the gun and unbeknownst to them, the gun actually had been altered by the owner to be a hair trigger. And so my client kept saying to me, I didn't pull the gun. You know, I had the gun out, but I didn't pull the trigger. And we realized that when the woman who died, you know, screamed, he jumped and that caused the gun to go off and kill her. You know, so there are these weird things of on the one hand, we're concerned about the number of, or so, a lot of people are concerned about uh, the number of weapons and, and yet we have the constitutional right to carry them. So how do we or do you have any thoughts on how, you know, what do we ban some weapons? Do we not ban others? And then how do we tie that into the reform of criminal justice reform that we were talking about? Look, I think we have to start from the premise that guns are not toys. They're lethal tools. And they need to be owned and managed and used with great care and respect. And responsible gun owners, I think, contrary to what we hear in a lot of the media, are actually of the view, like most Americans, that you should have to pass a criminal history check, that you should have to be of sound mind, that you should have to demonstrate that you're able to own, operate, and store firearms responsibly and safely so that you don't pose a risk to the public. We should take care not to needlessly antagonize responsible gun owners, people who are marksmen, hunters, collectors, who can own and operate guns safely. But my view is that gun ownership should require a license. Just like we demand that people demonstrate the skills and qualifications necessary to operate a motor vehicle, to fly an airplane, to do all manner of things. And I think that clearly, semi-automatic long guns, AR-15s should not be available to the general public. You should have to demonstrate specific need and high qualification to own a weapon like that. I do think that sometimes in all of a discussion about what we define as assault weapons, and this speaks to your story, we lose sight of the fact that most gun violence involves handguns. And so we can talk about the need which is real to keep weapons of war off our streets. But until we're ready to grapple with the fact that the proliferation of handguns and stolen handguns is driving a lot of the gun violence in this country, we're not really going to wrap our hands around the issue. Switching gear to voting and election security, what kind of legislation do you think could be in place? To, you know, that it's the it's a huge issue, obviously, because we're all worried that, you know, will our vote count? Um, 
you know, we, we were pushing people to go. I know the last um, election, you know, there were lines that I don't remember seeing many, many years. So there's definitely, it seems to me, a lot of motivation. But then your disappointment when you are concerned that it, your vote's not counting. Um, and obviously, we've on this podcast, we've done some podcasts with the lawyers working on the election litigation here in Georgia. Um, so any thoughts and, or recommendations um, that, and on a legislative sense, we still have to, obviously, there are things still going on in the courts, but on the legislative end to help improve that our vote counts. The state of Georgia has lost the public trust as an entity that can run elections fairly and securely. And I'll, I'll admit I was a little naive about this when I ran for Congress in 2017. But I have been thoroughly disillusioned. You may recall that a few weeks after I lost that race, a voting rights group filed suit against the state of Georgia and Brian Kemp challenging how the election was run. Three days after that suit landed in state court, state election officials destroyed Georgia's election server so that it could not be called as evidence. Six weeks later, that suit was referred to federal court. And on August 9th, 2017, literally the same day that it landed in federal court, state officials used magnets to destroy the backups of that election server by hand. Now, I struggle to find an innocent explanation for that conduct, the spoliation of evidence during litigation. And cybersecurity and let's clarify that word spoliation that just essentially the d- d- destruction of, of, of information. That's right. And I'm not an attorney. You are. But correct me if I'm wrong. Oftentimes, judges will either themselves or advise juries to interpret the destruction of evidence as an indication that the evidence would have damaged the case of, in this case, the defendants. Right. Because right. why else would it have been destroyed? Right. So we also have to approach this recognizing that as long as there have been elections, people have been trying to steal them. And that's true throughout American history. It's not some kind of wild-eyed conspiracy theory to suspect that people who run elections may abuse their power to manipulate them. That has happened throughout American history. It's happened throughout world history. And it's a story particularly resonant and true in the South. Reverend William Barber in North Carolina, he talks about the new face of Jim Crow, James Crow Esquire, how state officials use their official powers to the maximum in order to disenfranchise people, in order to influence elections. What do we do about it? Look, step one is we need to reinstate in full and strengthen the Voting Rights Act. The Shelby County decision of the Supreme Court gutted the preclearance provision of the Voting Rights Act that requires states like Georgia and counties in states like Georgia to preclear the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division changes they make to voting procedures. And we see all the time here in Georgia these late-breaking precinct changes and closures, the changes to voting procedures that make it more difficult for people to vote. We've also got, of course, the misallocation of voting machines, so people have to wait four to six hours. The abuse of the exact match laws so that naturalized immigrants have a tougher time with absentee ballots. Or removal. That I remember a couple of years ago when they first started doing that, I all of a sudden got, I thought, I've, I've voted even. I didn't miss an election. And I got something saying I was about to become pulled off the rolls. I, you know, it, 
it's startling. You just don't think it's real until you see it happening. And it seems like we're seeing it. We are seeing it. Yeah, our governor, Brian Kemp, has the infamy of having overseen the largest cancellation of voter registrations in American history. That is indelibly on his record as a public servant, and he should be ashamed of it. And my campaign is making this a high, high priority. Voter protection, we're preparing for litigation if necessary. There are two ongoing federal lawsuits. While at the same time, the state is currently moving between electronic voting systems, we will be ready to fight in court. We also cannot do this alone. And civil rights groups and voting rights groups need to be focused on protecting the franchise here in Georgia so we have a fair election. So I'm enjoying talking to you, but I know that um, the podcast is coming to an end. But I want to give you a chance in case there's something that I didn't mention um, that you want to include or inform our listeners about um, why they should vote for you. Look, I'm going to make the case for participation in our democracy right now in general, whether you're supporting me or supporting someone else whose philosophy aligns with your beliefs. We, we have a republic, right? And the famous line is, if we can keep it. We have everything we need to become a greater nation and to build the kind of world we want to leave the next generation. I think that one of the symptoms or one of the effects of this Trump era, which has been destabilizing and confusing, is that we've come to suspect that maybe the problems we face and the solutions to them are mysterious. They're not mysterious. We know exactly what problems we need to solve. We need to ensure every American has health care. We need to ensure that Americans are not going bankrupt because they can't afford prescription drugs. We need to rise to this moment to solve this environmental crisis, which scientists overwhelmingly warn us is severe and ongoing. And we need to invest in America's infrastructure to upgrade our quality of life and be competitive as we move further into this century. Again, there's broad consensus that we need to do these things. And yet our leaders are failing us because they're blinded by partisanship and ambition and thirst for power and because they're corrupted by all of the secret unlimited money flowing into our democracy. So let's clean up our politics. Let's pass a constitutional amendment that will result in overturning the Citizens United decision and get secret money out of our democracy. Then let's unite to solve these problems that need solving so that we can live in a stronger, healthier, better America. Thank you so much. Um, a reminder to everyone, the election is on May 19th, 2020. Um, and you've been listening to John Ossoff as my guest, who is running for the United States Senate to be the Democratic nominee. And as we do on every episode of Law Talk with BJ, we've been enjoying a cup of tea. And I choose my tea that's appropriate, I think, for my guests. And I'm going to pat myself on the back that I've done it once again. We're enjoying Moringa tea. And it boosts stamina. And one of the benefits is, um, on a more spiritual um, life sense, is it helps you with clarity and assuredness. And it sounds like to me you have very much clarity of what your picture of why you're running for the U.S. Senate. And you seem pretty confident in your goal 
to get there. So thank you for joining me on Law Talk with BJ. Thank you so much for having me. Hope to be back. Thank you for the tea. This podcast is not to be construed as legal advice. With any legal issue, you should reach out to a professional attorney that practices law in the state and area of law for which you need information or consultation. Law Talk with BJ does not establish an attorney-client relationship, which is only formed when you have hired an attorney and signed an engagement agreement or contract. It's Law Talk with BJ Music Theme, written and produced by Atlanta Audible. This podcast copyright 2018, BJ Bernstein, Esquire. <laughs>